The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Today's teaching text is from Genesis 3, 1-9. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Ready to go. Let's do it, shall we? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, right in the beginning of the Bible, is where we are going to be hanging out this morning. Uh, Welcome. If you're new, we'd love to meet you, connect with you, get to know you. The easiest way to do that is at the bottom of that bulletin that was on your seat. There's a little sign and drop card. At any point that you get bored during the next 30 or so minutes, just fill that out and then you can take it to the connect area. Thank you. Uh, You can take this to the connect area. We got a gift for you. We'd love to meet you, hear your story, all of that great stuff. Genesis chapter three. Let me pray for us and then uh, we're just going to kind of head right into what we're doing today. First Sunday of the year. Are Are we ready? Nice. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We delight in your love for us. Lord, you are our greatest joy. It's your glory and your renown across the world and in our lives that we are after and wanting and longing for, Lord, and we know that a huge part of that is to surrender ourselves to your seeking of us and your love for us, Lord, an incredibly difficult reality to embrace in our brokenness and our fallenness and our finiteness and yet a desperately needed reality for our lives. You love us. So I pray, Lord, if nothing else, you would help us walk away from your word with a deep sense of your love for us this morning. That's what we need. More than a new year, more than some great resolutions, more than a few well-timed goals, we need to know your love. And so help us. It's only possible by your spirit. So do what you've done for so long. Take your word, the power of your spirit, Put it into our lives such that we are changed. We need you. We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's how theologian A.W. Tozer begins his best-selling work, Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds, what you think about when you think about God 
is the single most important thing about you. He goes on to say this, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous or prominent or important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And here's the, here's the key. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It will change the trajectory of your soul and of your life. And this is true whether you think of God as awesome and magnificent and wonderful and holy, whether you think of him as shepherd and friend and confidant, whether you think of him as angry and bothered and impatient, or whether you don't really think about God at all. What comes into your mind when you think about God will change the trajectory of your soul and your life. And so let me turn Tozer's statement into a question for us as we begin this morning. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Like, think for just a minute. As we pause together, and when you hear God, what are the mental images that start flooding into your head? What attributes, what characteristics or stories or pictures rise to the surface? And how might that be affecting your soul, or your body, or your mind, or your life? What's our, our hope and our prayer over the course of this series? That one of the realities about God that might stick at the forefront of our minds is this. Our God is the God who seeks and saves. If you examine the scriptures from front to back, one of the continual themes you will see is the desperate need for humanity to be pursued and chased and caught and welcomed and the continual heart of God to do that pursuing. So we prayerfully want to spend the next six weeks or so jumping into 2024, highlighting this beautiful theme in the scriptures. Our God is the God who seeks. And to do so, we want to look at various stories, some famous and some not so famous, that show that seeking heart of God for various people. So we're going to look at the seeking heart of God for the runaway, and for the sinner, and for the downtrodden, and for the outcast, and the religious. And today we're going to start in Genesis 3, and we're going to look at very simply at this. God has been seeking from the beginning. All right, that's where we're going to head. Let's just give you the recap as we kind of get into it together. So Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, sun, moon, stars, land, sea, birds, animals, all of that. And then you get to the pinnacle of his creating act in Genesis 1:27, where he creates Adam and Eve, male and female. They're the only part of creation that's created in what theologians call the Imago Dei the image of God. There's a uniqueness to humanity where nothing else in all creation bears his imprint like you and I do. We're unique. We're special in that way. And then you get to the end of chapter 1, verse 31, and God looks out over his creation and he declares it in the Hebrew, mehotov, or just right. Exactly as it should be. Everything is living in shalom or flourishing or rightness. And then you get into Genesis 2. It's a retelling of the creation of Adam and Eve, a little more detail. And you also get, in the middle of chapter 2, the one do not command God gives to Adam and Eve. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 17. He gives them a whole bunch of to-dos. One, do not, do not eat from this particular tree. If you eat of it, you will die, aka death will enter into the world. Not just physical death, spiritual death, relational death, the death of the soul. 
It's a great story so far, right? Everything's kind of good, it's shalom, it's as it should be, and then you get to Genesis 3, and if you know the story, you know this is where it goes not so great. So we'll just pick it up in verse 1. We'll walk through 1 through 9 together. Let me draw some things out for us. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, audience participation. What's the answer to that question that he just asked? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's the answer? No, he says you cannot eat from one specific tree. But notice what's happening. The devil, the adversary or enemy of God, showing up in the form of a serpent, beginning to ask questions to get Adam and Eve to doubt whether or not they can actually trust God. They're, he's aiming at distrust. He's trying to say, did God actually say? We know the answer is no. Let's see, see what Eve says. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Notice this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Technically, this is an adding to the command of God in chapter two, verse 17. God says, do not eat. Satan comes up and says, did he say don't eat any tree? He was like, no, he said, don't eat this tree. He also said, don't touch it. Now, here's what we don't know. We don't know if Eve is sorting, like, growing upset at God and angry at God, so she's kind of adding to his words, or if Adam just way messed up the details, which is very male-like of him to do, is just to way mess up the details. Like, uh, he says some things, just stay away from it, right? <laughs> we don't know what's happening here. We do know she's getting God's word wrong. And anytime you get God's word wrong, you're in trouble. Verse 3. Verse four, sorry. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he starts with a deceptive question. Did God really say? He's just planting the seeds of distrust, planting the seeds of doubt. And then he moves to just full blown lie. You're not gonna die. Just forget that whole thing God said about the death thing. He knows that your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like him, a.k.a. he's withholding from you. He's keeping from you. Surely he has some good that he is trying to keep you back from. Surely you cannot trust him. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Eve is tempted by the pull of the fruit and all of the good that it seems to offer, right? Good for food or sustenance. It's a delight to her eyes. It can make her wise is what she thinks. Look at all that it can offer, and she chooses the created fruit over the created the creator God. Paul in Romans 1 is going to point to this scene of Adam and Eve, and he's going to say what happens is that they're giving God's creation the glory that belongs to God. And this is what the heart of all sin and the heart of all idolatry actually is. It's taking what belongs only to God and then trying to place it onto a created thing. The glory that is due him, the honor that is due him, the value that is due him, and saying, instead of giving that to the creator, we're going to give it to the creation, and we're going to elevate the creation into the place of the creator and worship it instead. That's the heart of all sin. That's the heart of all idolatry, all rebellion against God, is rather than finding delight and joy in God, we find it in his creation. 
Verse 7, here's what happens because they eat of the tree. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That's the Bible's language for shame. They're exposed. They're aware. We have now done something wrong, and they feel the, the exposure of shame. They feel open up to the world around them, and they don't like it, so this is what they do. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve rebel. They experience, for the first time in human history, shame, guilt, being exposed vulnerable, all the feelings that come with shame. They know they're guilty. They know they've gone against God's commands and will. And so what do they do? They feel this shame. What do they do? They do what we all do when we feel shame. They try to fix it. Like I feel vulnerable. I feel exposed. What do I need to do to push this feeling away and to feel comfortable and secure again, right? That's, that's our experience of shame and guilt. When we know we are guilty, it's like, what do I need to do to just kind of stuff this down and feel okay again, right? So they try to fix it themselves. What do they do? They take fig leaves and they try to make them into loincloths and cover themselves up physically. It doesn't seem to work and they, they hear God walking in the garden and so they go to option two. If we can't fix it by making coverings for ourselves, what if we just hide? Which if we can just be honest with the text for a minute, this is the worst game of hide and seek in history, right? It's like, hey, the God who just spoke the trees into being with his voice, maybe we can hide from him in said trees, Right? This is what happens when we play hide-and-seek in my house with Harper, the three-year-old that you just saw a second ago, right? She's like, let's play hide-and-seek. I'm like, all right, and I count to 20, and then she goes, and she runs, and I walk into the living room, and she's just sitting in the living room. That's it. Like, no blanket over the head, no trying to hide behind a chair. She's just sitting there, and she's like, oh, you found me. And it's like, of course. <laughs> You're in the middle of the room. What are they thinking? It's the stupidest game of hide-and-seek ever. Maybe we can hide from the one who created the world we're trying to hide in. Their shame is lying to them, telling them, you have to run, you have to hide, you have to figure it out yourself. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Don't fill in the rest, don't go Sunday school and just write the rest of the story. We'll get there in a second. Let's just pause at verse eight. Think about for a minute what just took place. Instead of trusting the God who formed them and breathed life into them, Instead of trusting the God who has provided for them and cared for them. Instead of trusting the God who has given them food and shelter and beauty and intimacy and relationship with himself and one another. Instead of trusting the God who has instructed them in the ways of flourishing, right? Here's what you're supposed to do. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. Rule with me over creation and what them not to do. Do not eat from this one tree. He's instructed them into flourishing. Instead of entrusting themselves to this God, they doubt his goodness and they push him away. And the consequences of this rebellion are devastating, to say the least, right? It's what theologians refer to as the fall. Sin enters the world, and you see all the reverberating consequences spelled out in the rest of chapter 3. There's shame, there's pain, there's confusion, there's relational conflict, there's futility and struggle and separation from God and physical and spiritual death. And if you read the rest of the chapter, there are very real and painful consequences, even for Adam and Eve, because of their sin. And here's what's important and what you have to understand. This could have easily been the end of the story. Like, don't, don't fill in the rest. Don't be like, but we know what's coming. We'll get there, all right? Just stop it here. This could have been the end of the story. 
The story of humanity, the story of the scriptures could have ended in Genesis 3 and God could have gone off with him in the Trinity in perfection into eternity future. This could have been the end for us. Growing up, uh, when I was in middle school, I had like a, a couple month period where I really wanted to be an author. I really wanted to write novels. And I had this whole phase where I would carry around like little paperback novels in my back pocket and I would fake smoke candy cigarettes. It was a whole vibe, it was awesome. I watched One Tree Hill and Chad Michael Murray did it and so I was like, yes, I wanna be like him. And so I did that, but the problem was is that I was not a good writer. And so what would happen is I would sit down to write and I would have the start of these stories and I would have all of this like character building and world building that you can have when you're like 12 and I was like trying my best to like map out this whole story and have all this plot and I knew like you start with the introduction and then you get into the rising action and it's gonna be awesome. And then inevitably, at some point around page three or four, my hand would start to cramp and I would get really bored. And so what would happen is every single one of my middle school stories, I actually found some a couple of days ago, it reminded me of this. Every single one would, would start with all of this character building and it would end the same way. And then the world exploded and they all died. Because I was just tired of writing. I was like, I'm good, how do I wrap this up? I'm just, they all, they all died, right, that's it. That could be the story of humanity. That's what could have happened in Genesis chapter three. God created the world, everything was awesome. It was just as it should be. Adam and Eve in the garden, flourishing with him. He gave them one do not command. They rebelled against him because they did not trust his goodness and his kindness. And so that was the end of humanity and God went on in perfection in the Trinity into eternity future. That could be it. And listen to me here. God in his holiness and awesomeness and glory would have been perfectly just if that's how the story would have gone. He would have been perfectly just in his holiness, he does not need us, he is perfection in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfection. He was in perfection before we were created, he did not create us out of some lack or need, he created us out of an overflow of his love for himself. And he could have gone on and been perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly right. Praise God for his mercy. That's not how the story ends. It doesn't end in verse eight. Keep going, verse nine. Look at what happens. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? One pastor describes this as the turning point of the whole Bible. You end at Genesis 3.8, you know things are messed up, but Genesis 3.9, the Lord called to the man. God comes looking for humanity. And Adam and Eve are hiding. They're trying to cover themselves up. They're expecting in fear God the destroyer. And instead he shows up as God the seeker. Adam, where are you? He comes looking, pursuing, seeking his lost son and daughter. He pursues. He loves. He disciplines. Yes, that's a part of his love, right? Hebrews chapter 12 says he disciplines those he loves as his children. And yet he calls out to them to draw them back to himself. And in his pursuit of Adam and Eve, he makes them a promise. He makes all of humanity a promise. So he's laying out the consequences of sin. And then in Genesis 3.15, his words to the serpent, he says this. I, I being God, will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head. Some translations you might have, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
This is what theologians call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the first promise about Christ. God tells shame-ridden, hiding, trying to fix and cover themselves up, rebellious, sinful Adam and Eve, I'm going to make this right. Yes, death will enter into the world because of sin, but death will not be the end of the world. Sin and death and the serpent will not win. One day a child will be born, a far off, distant offspring of Eve, and the serpent will strike his heel. The offspring of the woman will face temptation and suffering and betrayal. Though he will be sinless, he will die a sinner's death on the cross. It will be a strike to his heel, and it will seem to all humanity like Satan has won, just like it seems he won in Genesis chapter 3. The story doesn't end in Genesis 3, and it doesn't end on the cross. Because the offspring of the woman will not stay in the grave and his heel will not be bruised forever. After three days, right, he will get up out of the grave, defeating sin, defeating death, fulfilling the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. He will crush the head of the enemy. Amen? Even in the rebellion of Adam and Eve, even in the fall, even in the entrance of sin and death into the world, God is a seeking God. He seeks Adam and Eve, and he promises through the life, death, and resurrection of his son that he will seek and save the world. And so here's what we want you to understand over the course of this series. This is the heart of God from the very beginning. This is the story of our faith. Christianity is one big cosmic story about God seeking and saving, of his mercy for undeserving people. He's been doing that since the beginning, seeking and saving. It was true in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve, and it's true in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, and it's true in your life and my life as well. God is a seeking God. Because here's the reality you have to understand. All of us are just like Adam and Eve. We listen to the lies and deception of the enemy, getting us to doubt and distrust the goodness of God, the root of every single one of your acts of rebellion against God and my acts of rebellion against God are my distrust that God knows better than I do. Every single one. Why I run after all of these different kinds of things is because I doubt I can actually find fulfillment and contentment and belonging in him. And so I look for every other created thing to give me what the creator actually promises himself. In the words of one pastor, I want the kingdom of God without the king. I want peace, I want joy, I want life, and so I look for everything but the one who actually offers it to me. And because of that, I'm riddled with shame and guilt. Chances are, your life might be too. This is the words of French philosopher and playwright and atheist, Jean-Paul Sartre, that's my best French. He says this. He says, inside every human heart, whether they believe God or not, is a voice that whispers, not acceptable. Whether you believe in God or not, there's this little voice, is there not, that just creeps up at midnight when you're trying to fall asleep? That's like in the back of your mind when you're trying to do that spreadsheet at work? That's just kind of there when you're going on the first date or when you're hanging out with the new friend group or when you're trying to know how to forgive your spouse? That just kind of sits on your heart. I am not okay. I'm not acceptable, I'm condemned. And so what do we do? We try to deal with our shame and guilt in all the same ways as Adam and Eve. Option one, let's try to fix it ourselves. I love how one pastor, he says, the fig leaves are the world's first religion. What do I need to do to cover myself up? Is that not religion 101? 
What action do I need to take? I know that I've rebelled against God. I know I've done a bad thing. What good things do I need to do to cancel out the bad things so I feel better about myself and absolve and appease the guilt and shame that I feel? That's religion. I gotta help somebody because I hurt somebody. I gotta give a little bit because I didn't show up to that thing. Right? Who do I gotta serve because I gave into that addiction again? Right? How do I cancel out the bad with the good? It's just all vain 21st century attempts at fig leaves. How do I cover myself up from the exposure of my sin and shame and guilt? And when that doesn't work, we do option two, which is we try to hide from God. We'll talk about this a lot next week. We hide by rationalizing our sin. Yeah, but I'm, I'm good as a, as a whole. Right? Like I'm better at least compared to that other person. We hide by trying to ignore our sin. Like maybe if I just don't think about it, it'll just kind of go away. We hide by trying to run from God and it consume the entirety of our attention with career or family or travel or pleasures or media or fill in the blank. And yet still, church, in the mess and chaos of all of that, God still seeks. He still pursues. He still chases. He still sends his son to die for us. The fact that you are here today on January 7th, is it 7th? January 7th, 2024, is evidence that God is seeking you. It's evidence that he sought you, and not just talking about in your salvation. I'm not just talking about him seeking you to bring you to himself in salvation and entrance into the kingdom. I'm talking about every act of your life and every moment of your heart that has its turn towards God was him first turning himself towards you. Every time you want to open the Bible and you have any desire at all to be with him in his word is first evidence of God seeking you. Anytime you're willing to forgive someone or reconcile with someone or have a heart posture of softness towards someone who hurts you is first and foremost evidence of God seeking you. Every time you want to step into any calling he has over your life, vocation, parenting, relationships, whatever it may be, anytime you go, you know what, I really want to live for God today, that's first and foremost not evidence of you being awesome, it's evidence of God seeking you, turning your heart towards him. This has been his heart from the very beginning. Genesis 3, on the cross, the banner over our lives. He is the God who seeks, who loves. And so the question for us as we begin our series is very simply, are you open to the love of God? Are you open to his seeking? Is that what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is your first thought When you think about God, his delight over you in Christ Jesus, his seeking of you, his pursuit of you, his chasing of you, is the the view you have of God, I am always behind and he's always just a little bit away. How do I speed up my run so I can finally get a hold of what feels unholdable? Or is your view of God, I do nothing and he pursues me in his grace and mercy? depending on which posture you decide for 2024, will change the trajectory of your soul. If you enter 2024 and your list of resolutions or goals, I'm just assuming we all make them, your, hypothetically, your resolutions and goals is a bunch of ways I'm going to be more awesome and subliminally under the surface so that God will like you more or approve of you more, that's going to do nothing but get to the end of the year with a shriveled soul. But if your posture entering into the year is, if I am in Christ Jesus, if I have trusted in him for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, for life forever with God, I have nothing left to prove. There is nothing I can do to make God love me less or love me more. I am fully welcomed by him in Christ because he has sought me and continues to seek me every single morning that I wake up. 
might your soul grow? Might it become enlivened by the love of God? And so the question is, is that what comes into your mind when you think about God? That the first thought, do you wonder at his kindness to you? Do you marvel at the sacrifice of the cross? Do you sit and rejoice in his constant seeking of you, even if, like me, I constantly go astray? That is perhaps, as I prayed to start us, the greatest challenge and yet greatest necessity of your life, to learn to be loved by God. That is the hardest thing you will ever do. It'll be a lifetime of learning to be loved by God. Yet it's the greatest necessity because it is the only thing that will shape your soul into flourishing with him. Henry Nouwen, one of my uh, favorite 20th century writers, he passed away a couple decades ago, but for the first part of his life, he rose through the theological ranks. He wrote a bunch of theological bestsellers. He had a sought-after speaking career, lots of fame and renown. But in his 50s, he started getting worried about the effect of popularity, especially popularity in the Christian world, and what it would mean for his soul. And so around the age of mid-50s, he actually left his position as a tenured professor at Notre Dame, and he went to serve in a community, a church community for adults with disabilities just outside of Toronto, Canada, where he spent the last decade and a half of his life. And he wrote a lot near the end of his life about his struggle with both vocations. His struggle both as a professor at Notre Dame and serving in this church community, and the effect of both because of his desire to try to prove something to God. And so he wrote often later in his life about his struggle through um, academic prestige and through fame to earn a name before God, and then also through his trying to lower himself and serve these communities in need, trying to elevate his status before God. And so he struggles with this, and he is reflecting on that struggle near the end of his life. And he writes this. It's uh, from his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. If you're interested, you just want to read a little now and over January. It's one of my favorite Henry Nouwen quotes of all time. This is, this is what he says. He says, for most of my life, I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I've failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? Finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. Longing to bring me home. Church, your story, my story, the story of humanity has never been the story about how we are going to find God. It's not the scriptures. It's not a guidebook for finding this deity called Yahweh. The story of humanity, the story of the scriptures, the story of our lives has always been and always will be God finding us. God seeking us, God pursuing us, God chasing us. When we run away, when we are downtrodden and depressed and in despair, when we are his enemy, when we're doing all the religious things to try to find ourselves 
and save ourselves and welcome ourselves home, his constant heart is pursuit of those who are lost. So the question for us is, are we open to him? Will we actually pause for just long enough to hear that voice of love? It's the greatest need and the greatest struggle you will have in your life. And so over the course of this series, we just thought it'd be good to start 2024 with just talking about his seeking heart a lot. And so what I want to do as we close is just give us some practices you might think about incorporating into your life to open yourself up to the love of God over the next few weeks. We're going to talk about it here on Sundays, but I just want to invite you into some things. We make invitations, you make decisions, but here's some things you could do over the course of your week and the course of your day to open your heart up to being loved by God. Number one is to remember the gospel daily. Remember the gospel daily. Create a rhythm of some sort. You can read all the stuff on habit stacking and connecting it to a rhythm you already do, all that fun stuff. But what you want to do is just have a daily discipline in some way, shape, or form of rehearsing the gospel to yourself. It can be a short prayer. You write on a note card and you stick it in the front of your Bible or you make it the, the home screen on your iPhone or you write it on the mirror in your bathroom. Some short synopsis of the gospel. Something like, God is good, I am not, and yet he delights in me in Christ. Something simple like that. God is good, I am not, and yet he loves me in Christ Jesus. Something daily to just start your day, get that constant reminder. When you roll over in bed and you're like going to get on TikTok and stuff, that first lock screen on your phone. God is good, I am not. You can design it. I don't know, Canva is a good idea. Just to get the gospel into your heart daily. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century British preacher, who said that the difference between those who make progress in the Christian life and those who don't are those who learn to stop listening to themselves and start talking to themselves. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Second thing I invite you to, to step into in a daily or weekly basis is listening prayer. Listening prayer. We, we did this a lot back in our prayer series last summer. We talked about the Lord's Prayer, how prayer is first and foremost not talking, it's communion, it's being with God and in his presence. And so maybe at the start of the day or the end of the day or at noon, you can set a little alarm on your phone to just take a minute, two minutes, five minutes, whatever you're able to do, to just sit in silence and receive God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Just sit and bask in glory in his pursuit of you, his seeking of you. Start the day with that, end the day with that. Do it as a, a family or as roommates over the dinner table, whatever that might look like. You can start a, a text thread in your group. Hey, 9 a.m., let's do it all together, whatever that might look like. Just creating some amount of space for a few minutes to open your heart up to being loved by God. And then third, this is a little more meaty if you want to go for it, is to keep the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath. If you're not familiar, a Sabbath is a 24-hour period. It's been a practice for God's people since the Old Testament of setting down work and picking up what delights our hearts towards God. It's a struggle, right? Because we live in 2024, and life is busy and chaotic, and our email's on our phone, and we're always on the go, and we're always needed, right? We have the worst work-life boundaries in history. So it's hard. I just want to keep going and achieving and consuming and doing. And so taking 24 hours to rest, to cease from work, and to pick up delight in God, his gifts, and his people is a chance for you to train your body and your heart and your soul to be loved by God. Because it's a day every week where you say, I don't have to achieve to be loved. I don't have to earn to be loved. I can lay this down and delight in what God has given me. If you want resources on that, citizenscharlotte.com backslash Sabbath, citizenscharlotte.com backslash 
slash Sabbath. Give you lots of details on how to do that. Just simple practices to invite you into this posture. Before I pray, let me close once again with this beautiful quote from Nowen, because I like it. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, 2024, how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. Let's pray.